I want to remind you that <clears throat> we want to receive what they received in the book of Acts, and so it's important we started last night on a journey. We need to know what they knew, and we need to do what they did in order to get what they got. Again, we're on a journey here. We hadn't had our ministry time yet. We're headed for a ministry time. So far, we are on a journey. Again, we want to know what they knew. We want to do what they did in order to get what they got. And what do they know? Well, they know, I mean, they knew that they were chosen by Christ. They knew that Christ had revealed himself to them. They knew they were commissioned by Christ, and they knew they were promised Holy Spirit power. They knew those things. They're confident of that. So it's crucial for us to know those things, to know that Christ chose you, and Christ revealed himself to you, and Christ gave you a commission, and Christ promised you Holy Spirit power. So that's where it starts. It starts by really knowing that. And then we need to do what they did, and we saw the kind of prayer that really they prayed leading up to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. We looked at that kind of praying, and that's what we've been doing in our worship time and prayer time. And again, let me just remind you what Jesus told his disciples before he ascended into heaven. Let's look at Acts 1, verse 4 and 5. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard of from me, for John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. In other words, he's saying, John the Baptist immersed you in water. But not many days from now, you are going to be, the ascended Christ is going to immerse you with the Holy Spirit. So John, he said, John the Baptist drenched you with water. And not many days from now, the Holy Spirit is going to drench you. I mean, Jesus is going to drench you with the Holy Spirit. So the disciples went back to Jerusalem, and they were continually in the temple praising God and continuing in the upper room praying. We saw there's three kinds of character, three characteristics of the kind of prayer they were doing. It was passionate praise. I mean, they worship with all their heart, very much like I think most of us just did right now, maybe all of us. There was unified intercession. They were all asking for the same thing. They are asking, Lord, would you pour out your spirit on us today? And there was persistent prayer. They continued, continually were praying and, and pursuing the outpouring of the Spirit. Again, what, what I pointed out last night is that not only was that the kind of prayer that preceded the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts, but that is the kind of prayer that has preceded the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in every revival and every awakening that I've read about around the world throughout history. And so there's something about that that captures the heart of God, and God just loves to do it. He just loves to do it. He, he just he loves to he loves to inhabit the praises of his people. I mean, we just you got some taste of that just a moment ago. I mean, you, you, it's like God is in the house. He, he loves to be in the house where he is passionately praised and pursued. Well, this morning what I want to do is divide uh, our study. I want to go to Acts chapter two again. We're on a journey here, and and really we're we're actually you know, doing a a, a a kind of a short version of the journey. A journey similar I do when I with pastors in different countries. I normally take five days on this journey with them. And uh, we're asking the Lord to graciously enable us to, to be able to understand these things in a shorter amount of time. But I want you to see in Acts chapter 2, at the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, our study in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, we're going to divide into four parts. There's going to be the expectation of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. What do they expect? Then there's going to be the actual experience of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. What do they experience? And then the effect of the outpouring of the Spirit. What was the effect of it? And then the end result of the outpouring of the Spirit. What was the end result? Of what did God have in mind in the first place for why he did all that? So I want to walk through that and give us a good foundation. First of all, the expectation of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So what were the disciples expecting to get when the Holy Spirit was poured out? They had some expectation. What were they expecting to get. Well, remember what Jesus told him in Luke 24, verse 49. He said, And behold, I'm sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So what did Jesus tell them they're going to get? Power. 
All right, also Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. Now, what did Jesus tell them, they, tell them they're going to get? Power. What was the power for? The power was so they would be able to be effective witnesses. Effective witnesses of the gospel of Christ. Now, let me ask you this question. Do you think any of the disciples thought that they were supposed to go back and wait in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit to come so they could be born again? Do you think any of the disciples thought they're supposed to go back and wait in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit to come so they could be forgiven of their sins? Do you think any of the disciples thought they needed to go back to Jerusalem, wait for the Holy Spirit so they could be united with Christ? Or did they understand all three of those things that already happened? So there's really good reason for believing that these disciples clearly understood they'd already been born again. They'd already been converted by before Acts chapter 2. Now, where do we get that? Well, let's look at John chapter 13, verse 10 and 11. This, remember, of course, remember Jesus is washing the disciples' feet. This is the context here. John 13, verse 10 and 11. Remember, he washed Peter's feet. And Peter's like, well, just wash my whole body. Now, Jesus said, notice what Jesus says in John 13, 10. He says, Jesus said to him, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not all of you. Now, Jesus does a play on words here. You are clean, but not all of you. Of course, the play on words is, yeah, your feet are dirty, Peter. You're clean. You've bathed, but not all of you. But he's doing a play on words because he's talking about all the disciples now. How do we know that? By reading the next verse. By the way, most denominations would have never happened if they had read the next verse. The next verse, John 13, 11, it says, For he, Jesus, knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. He's talking about Judas, who he calls the son of perdition or the son of hell. He was not clean. So if you argue that they already belonged to Jesus before Acts chapter 2, which I think you could obviously make the case they've been forgiven and they were his, then you'd have to also, I think, argue that, that the Holy Spirit is also dwelling in them. Romans 8 and 9, Paul says, you are, However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Now, didn't the disciples belong to Christ before Acts chapter 2? And he says they were clean, they were forgiven. So the Spirit of God already indwells them at this point. Now let's remember a couple of things that Jesus already said to the disciples. John 14, verse 16 and 17. He says, I will ask the Father and he'll give you another helper that he may be with you forever. He's talking about the Holy Spirit, verse 17. He goes on to say that. That is the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. So Jesus told the disciples of a time the Holy Spirit was going to be in them and indwell them. That was John 14. Well, John 20, here's what happens. John 20, verse 21 and 22. So Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. He's the resurrected Christ. He's making appearances to the disciples. And the first thing he says to them is peace be with you because they're pretty you know, nerve wracking about this whole thing. Jesus said, peace be with you. As a father has sent me, I also send you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. So Jesus doesn't say, wait in Jerusalem until you're born again. He doesn't say, wait in Jerusalem until you're converted and put in the body of Christ. He says, wait in Jerusalem until you're clothed with power from on high. He says, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Again, I believe that it's important that we understand that being baptized or immersed with the Holy Spirit, the way Jesus uses the word here, is not the same as being born again 
or being united with Christ by the work of the Holy Spirit. In other words, I don't think what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, when he uses the word baptism, being baptized in the Spirit is the same thing as the way Jesus is using the term here in Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2. All right, Paul says, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, he says, For by one Spirit, talking to all believers here in Corinth, by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we're all made to drink of one Spirit. Now, the context of 1 Corinthians chapter 12 shows that he's referring to a work of the Holy Spirit that unites all believers to Christ. And by the way, this is the same work as conversion. So when you're born again and you put your faith in Christ, the Spirit of God unites you to Christ, and you become part of the body of Christ. And that is the way Paul uses the term in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13. Now, some assume that Paul, the way Paul is using the term in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, the way Jesus uses the term in Acts uh, chapter 1, are the same. And there's, there's scholars that argue that point, and there's scholars on the other side, and godly men on both sides, godly women on both sides that see this differently. I'm, I'm presenting you a, a view. There's, there are two ways to look. As I'm presenting a view that I think I'm persuaded is correct, but I'm also persuaded is desperately needed in the church. What the disciples expected to happen was not that they were going to be born again, when they went back to Jerusalem, or they were going to be united with Christ. I believe that they that, that already occurred. What they expected to happen, they understood clearly what was going to happen, is they were going to receive power to do ministry in Jerusalem, be, be powerful witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the world. Again, remember, in Luke 24, verse 47, he told them they're going to preach to all nations. He's going to release them to the ethnos of the world. And the point of verse 49 is this. We cannot do with great success what he's calling us to do without this power. That's the point. We need this immersion. We need to be drenched in the Holy Spirit. We need to be empowered in the Holy Spirit for us to do this mission that requires supernatural power. So my whole point so far is simply this. That's what they expected. That was the expectation they had was power. All right, let's see next what happens. What did they experience? They expected power. Let's see what happened. Acts chapter 2, verse 1 through 4. When the day of Pentecost has come, they're all together in one place. Again, remember I said it's a 10-day prayer meeting because 40 days Jesus appeared to them. 40 days after Passover, he's appearing to them as a resurrected Christ. And then at Pentecost, Pentecost 50, 50 days after Passover, so there's 10 days, 50 days after Passover, this happens. That's why we know it's a 10-day prayer meeting. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise, like a violent rushing wind. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. <clears throat> and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. So again, just as the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus at his baptism, so that he was anointed with the Spirit, the Spirit came upon him. He was anointed by the Spirit. Before he did any ministry, he was empowered by the Spirit to do it. Well, that same Holy Spirit now comes on the 120 in the upper room. But I want you to notice something. I want you to notice three phenomena. Noise like the wind, tongues of fire, and languages. All right, so there is first the sound. There's a sound they hear. The sound is a noise. The noise like a rushing wind. This symbolized power. Power's here. Something's happening. Then there's something they saw. They saw tongues as of fire. It looked like tongues of fire coming down upon each one of them. They saw this. 
Again, I think that symbolizes purity, kind of like when Isaiah said, here I am, send me, O Lord, and he was, he was cleansed with that coal. There's a purity happening here. And then the speech in other languages, I think, symbolizes the universality of the Christian church, that this is going to go to every tongue, tribe, and nation, this gospel. Now, it's important for us to remember that the crowd on the day of Pentecost was of international nature. All right, let's read what I'm talking about. Let's pick it up in verse 5. Now, there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each of them was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and districts of Libya around Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. They all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others were mocking and saying, They are full of sweet wine. By the way, ever since the early church fathers, commentators have seen the blessing of Pentecost as a deliberate and dramatic reversal of the curse of Babel. At the Tower of Babel, human languages were confused and the nations were scattered. In Jerusalem, the language barrier was supernaturally overcome as a sign that nations would be gathered one day together around Christ. This is a prefiguring of what's going to happen in the end, that people from every tongue, tribe, and nation one day will gather around him. And right now there's the first fruits of the harvest right there. Now, why is that important, that the first fruits of the harvest happened at Pentecost? Do you know why? First of all, do you know why so many people from other countries were even there at Pentecost? This is one of the three Jewish feasts in which there was a, there was a, it was called for a pilgrimage to the holy city, and it got its name Penta 50, 50 days after Passover. But also Pentecost was, was actually called in, in Deuteronomy, I'm sorry, Exodus 23, verse 16, it's called the Feast of Harvest. Isn't that interesting? So the Holy Spirit's being poured out, what for? For harvest around the world people, every tongue, tribe, and nation. And what do we have on the day of Pentecost? We have the first fruits. We have people from the tongue, everyone, every language there, hearing in their own language the truth of God. What a beautiful scene. So we have 3,000 people end up getting saved, or we should say harvested by God. The conclusion of Peter's sermon, Peter stands up and preaches this awesome message. If you ever want to know what good preaching sounds like, looks like, reads like, just read Acts chapter 2, Peter's sermon. So Pentecost was the first of the great outpourings on the Christian church. What for? For the task, primarily for the task of world evangelization. Just keep that in mind. Let's keep the main focus of what this is supposed to, what to happen. There's a lot of other things it does, but the main thing is the Spirit of God is being poured out for world evangelization. And it's the first outpouring. And I believe it's really our duty to pray for fresh, more and more extraordinary outpourings of the Spirit of God to awaken and empower the church around the world because we haven't finished world evangelization. So we need to, so churches that don't think we need this, I'm thinking, are you, you know, do you not know what's going on around the world? We desperately need the Spirit of God poured out so we can finish this job of world evangelization. If they needed it, don't we need it today? Now, in verse 12, the demonstration of God's power and the miracle of speaking these other languages, it says tongues, but also says dialectos, dialects. It's clearly talking about languages. What it does is causes amazement to some and perplexity to others. What's interesting, those who are perplexed, I mean, really said two different things. They said, what does it mean? But the others said, some said, what does it mean? The others said, oh, they're just drunk. Which, by the way, this is the word of caution. When God moves in extraordinary ways, 
Whenever the Holy Spirit is poured out in extraordinary power and revivals and movements, be careful how you evaluate what you see. You know, some generally inquire, wait a second, what does this mean? Is this God? And others automatically write it off and say, oh, they're just filled with new wine. Watch out what you do with it. Be careful. All right, Acts 2, verse 14. But Peter, taking a stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it's only the third hour of the day. It's only nine in the morning. But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I'll pour out pour forth of my spirit on all mankind and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit and they shall prophesy. So when Jesus says in Acts 1-4, tells the disciples, wait for the promise of the Father. What he's saying is wait till the promise of Joel chapter 2 is fulfilled. The promise is now being fulfilled because Jesus ascends into heaven. He receives from the Father this what was prophesied by Joel, the promise of the Spirit, and then Jesus pours out the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Acts 2.32, this Jesus, Peter's still preaching, this Jesus God raised up again to which we're all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he, Jesus, has poured forth this which you both see and hear. So here we see that Jesus is actually doing the work of baptizing the disciples with the Holy Spirit. He's drenching them in the Spirit. So he enters into heaven, receives from the Father the promise of Joel 2, and he pours out the Spirit of God. And then what they see, what they see and what they experience is this phenomena. The phenomena is, again, threefold. Something they hear, there's rushing wind. Something they see, tongues as a fire. Something they experience, supernatural ability to speak other languages. That was the phenomena. But let me ask you this. This is real important that we get this. That was the phenomena. Well, what was the essence of baptism with the Spirit? What was the essence of it? What was the heart of the matter? What was the essence of being baptized with the Holy Spirit? Was the essence the sound of the wind? Was that the essence? Was the essence seeing tongues as a fire? Was that the essence? Was the essence speaking languages supernaturally you couldn't speak before? Was that the essence of it? See, now, if you argue that the essence of the baptism of the Spirit is the phenomena, you've got a problem. Let me tell you why. Because when we get into Acts chapter 4 and they pray again because now they're at the threat of persecution and the Holy Spirit fills them again, same people, probably new additions, but a lot of the same people in Acts 4 pray, the Holy Spirit fills them again, but there's a different phenomena in Acts 4. What is the phenomena there? Was there any wind there? Any tongues of fire? Any languages? What happens? The building shakes. So there's a different phenomenon, but the essence was the same. The essence was still the same, and that was that they, were, that they would be able to, you know, be able to, with power, be effective witnesses. So again, so what is the essence of the baptism with the Spirit? It is, to, it is about power for ministry, about power for being effective witnesses for Christ. It's important that we understand the difference between the phenomena and the essence because this is where, this is where you know, there's been so much disunity in the body of Christ because this has been confused. There's been so, so many people have been so hurt. There have been so many people disillusioned because they have not understood the difference between the phenomena and the essence. Okay, so the essence is power to be effective witnesses. Don't forget that. Power to speak the word of God with boldness. Power to do supernatural ministry. Okay, so that is the experience. That's what they experienced. All right, now what did, was the effect of it? What was the effect of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit? All right, that's what we're going to see happening in Acts 2. Peter stands up with the 11, and he preaches the gospel with great boldness. 3,000 get saved. In fact, again, Peter's sermon, I'll just give you a quick overview. We're not going to take time to, to look at it. 
But he actually summarizes his sermon. He talks about, number one, the gospel events, namely death and resurrection of Christ. He talks about the gospel witnesses, mainly the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament apostles who witnessed the resurrected Christ. He talks about the gospel promises, forgiveness, and the gift of the Spirit. He talks about the gospel conditions, inwardly repentance and faith, and outwardly through baptism. So really, it's a fourfold message. He talks about two events, Christ's death and resurrection. He talks, it, 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 these two events are attested by two witnesses, prophets and apostles, and on the basis of which God makes two promises, forgiveness and the gift of the Spirit, on the basis of two conditions, repentance and faith with baptism. It's, it's just a perfect, perfect message. And by the way, we have no liberty to amputate this gospel. And this is, the, this is the message we should be preaching today as well. All right, so what's the end result? The end result, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, is 3,000 people repent and are baptized. Verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself, including us. And with many words he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. So again, all true converts are promised forgiveness and the gift of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit brings about a new birth, joins us to Christ in his body. And from that moment on, the moment we turn, have turned to Christ as our Savior and Lord and are forgiven, the Holy Spirit comes and lives in us. And from that day on, we can begin to seek extraordinary, you know, extraordinary empowerments from the Spirit for the sake of ministry. And then we get this brief uh, picture of the Spirit-filled church in Acts 2.42. Let's just read it quickly. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place to the apostles. And all those who had believed to get, were together and had all things in common, and they began selling their property and possessions were sharing them with all as anyone had, might have need. And day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their day and to their number day by day those who were being saved. So real just an overview, it was, there's four things a spirit-filled church ought to be. It ought to be a, a learning church, that's what it was, learning the word, a loving church, they were very involved in each other's lives. A worshiping and praying church. And that's part of what this whole conference is about. And it was an evangelistic church, continuing to add more to their number day by day. Okay, but I want to return now to this subject of baptism of the Spirit for a moment. Because I want you to notice a few things. I want you to notice that in Acts chapter 2, verse 4, that it is also described as the filling with the Holy Spirit. The idea of being filled here with extraordinary power for ministry. And it's seen throughout the book of Acts. Believers are, who are indwelt with the Holy Spirit and belong to Christ are filled and empowered again and again with supernatural ministry, especially boldness in preaching the gospel. We get to Acts chapter 4, verse 8. Peter is again filled with the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 4 and speaks with such power that the Jewish leaders are amazed at his boldness <coughs> excuse me, and confidence in, in, as, he's, as he's preaching to them. In Acts 4, 31, I've already referred to this, <coughs> excuse me, that the, in Acts 4, 31, as they're, as they're praying, the building is shaken, and they, again, are filled with the Holy Spirit again. The same ones who the Spirit came upon in Acts chapter 2, again, are filled. Acts chapter 6, Stephen, it says, is full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and he does signs and wonders. And, he, and especially, they could not resist his wisdom in his preaching. 
He spoke, he spoke with such wisdom by the Spirit. <clears throat> Acts chapter 9, verse 17, the Apostle Paul is filled with the Holy Spirit at his, at his conversion. And the result is he speaks with extraordinary power, such extraordinary power that, that Jews in Damascus were confounded. Examples go on and on. My point is this. We need this filling today. The church needs this filling today. We need to be clothed with power from on high. The Great Commission is not completed. We need Holy Spirit power to be able to be effective witnesses here and around the world. And that power is promised here. So here's my, here's my question to you. Is, doesn't it make sense that if you, if you long to see Christ return, and you long to see the Great Commission fulfilled so he can return. And you long for, you know, to, to see him accomplish his purposes on earth. Wouldn't, wouldn't it make sense that you'd seek him to pour out his spirit more upon us today? So, again, this is part of what this, this meeting is about is, is we're going to have a ministry time here in a little bit. But I want to, before I do that, I wanted, there's something else I want to teach. But I'd like to take a brief break. Okay, I want to talk a little bit about the impartation of the Holy Spirit from the book of Acts. The impartation of the Holy Spirit through the laying on of hands. I want us to understand the significance of this practice in the book of Acts and then consider what it means for us today. And in order to help us understand the ministry of, of impartation of the Holy Spirit, I want us to <clears throat> understand it with just three prepositions. See, I mentioned earlier how there's different understandings of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, quote-unquote. And sometimes if using I'm not even going to use that word in this section because people have different understandings of the word, and that's part of the confusion. But I want to just use the prepositions that are being used in these stories in the book of Acts, and it's going to become very clear how the Holy Spirit, the ministry of the Holy Spirit works in the New Testament. <clears throat> the three prepositions are with, in, and upon. With, in, and upon. These are the prepositions that Jesus uses to refer to the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is actually going to talk about a time when the Holy Spirit was with the disciples but was not yet in them. Then he's going to talk about a time when the Holy Spirit was in the disciples, but not yet upon them. And then there's a time when the Holy Spirit comes upon the disciples and they're empowered to be witnesses of Christ in a bold and powerful way. So these are the three prepositions that Jesus himself uses to describe the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And we're going to see these three prepositions are also used in the book of Acts to describe the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And then we're going to see how, what, what this means to us today. So let's begin by seeing how Jesus uses these three prepositions to describe the ministry of the Holy Spirit. First, the preposition with. In John 14, verse 16 and 17, he says to his disciples, I'll ask the Father who will give you another helper that he may be with you Forever, that is the Holy Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides, here's the preposition, because he abides with you and will be in you. So Jesus says there was a time when the Holy Spirit was with the disciples but not yet in them. Right? That's what it says. He says he's with you but he's not yet in you. <clears throat> and I tell you, I think most of us probably can think back to a time when the Holy Spirit was with us and not yet in us. What do I mean by that? I mean, I, I clearly can think of a time that I was convicted by the Holy Spirit of my sin. I was being drawn to the Lord, but yet I had not yet repented and believed in Christ. I would say the Holy Spirit was with me, but not yet in me. I was under conviction, I was fighting it, I was being drawn, I was being wooed, but I had not yet come to a place of repentance and faith. So what is drawing me, what is convicting me? The Holy Spirit. So he's with me, but he wasn't yet in me because I hadn't yet repented and believed 
in Christ. And I think all of us can think of a time when that happened in our lives. Some people might have been a very brief time. For some people, it might have been a long fight before we repented and believed. All right, next preposition. That's preposition with. Next preposition in. John 20, verse 21 and 22. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. So now the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ breathes on these same disciples and says to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit that was with them is now in them. Now, this is true of every believer in Christ today. If you truly repent and believe in Christ, the Holy Spirit comes and lives in you. You are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. He's in you. Romans 8 9 again. However, you're not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. So all believers in Christ, all who belong to Christ, have the Holy Spirit dwelling in them. But this is not where it stops. There's another preposition. It's used to describe the ministry of the Spirit in the lives of the disciples, also in our lives. That's the preposition upon or on. Jesus tells these same disciples that he breathed on, said receive the Holy Spirit. He tells these same disciples to wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes upon them to empower them to be witnesses, effective witnesses. So that's the third preposition upon. Acts 1.8, Jesus says again to these same disciples that he breathed on, said receive the Holy Spirit. Acts 1.8, he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria, even to the remotest part of the earth. So the resurrected Christ tells the disciples to wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes upon them. And the result of the Holy Spirit coming upon them would be they would be empowered supernaturally to be effective witnesses for Christ. So now the use of the preposition upon or on to describe the empowering ministry of the Holy Spirit is not new to the New Testament. It was used that way in the Old Testament. In fact, I want you to see this in the life of King Saul, the first king of Israel. 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 5. It says, Afterward, you will come to a hill of God where the Philistine garrison is, and it shall be as soon as you've come there to to the city that you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them. And they'll be prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will come upon you, King Saul, will come upon you mightily, and you shall prophesy with them. Be changed to another man. That's what happened in 1 Samuel 10.10. When they came to the hill there, behold, a group of prophets met him. And the Spirit of God came upon him mightily so that he prophesied among them. So later, word came to King Saul of a threat by some of the enemies of the people of God. I want you to notice what happens. 1 Samuel chapter 11, verse 6. Then the Spirit of God came upon Saul mightily when he heard these words and he became angry. So now the preposition upon or on is used in reference to the ministry of the Holy Spirit, particularly, I think, in spiritual warfare. He's got supernatural power, and there is, at this point, there's kind of a holy indignation and anger to defend the people of God. So I think it's a spiritual warfare parallel for us in the New Testament. So again, when the preposition upon or on is used in reference to the ministry of the Holy Spirit, It always has to do with supernatural empowerment to do ministry. Later in Saul's life, he turned away from the Lord. Look what happened. 1 Samuel 18, verse 10. Now it came about on the next day that an evil spirit from God, God allowed this evil spirit to do what it wanted to do. An evil spirit from God came mightily, listen to this, upon Saul. And he raved in the midst of the house while David was playing the harp with his hand as as usual. And a spear was in Saul's hand. So Saul had turned away from the Lord. 
The supernatural protection of the power of the Spirit of God was removed from him in his rebellion. And now an evil spirit comes upon him. But I want you to notice that the preposition upon is used to describe empowerment and control by an evil spirit. So again, it's important that we understand that this preposition upon or on, what it communicates, it communicates supernatural empowerment and control. When the preposition in is used, like the Holy Spirit being in someone, it has to do with relationship. It means we belong to him. We're his property. We're united with God. We're united with Christ. We're born again. We're regenerated. We've been converted. We're God's possession. The Holy Spirit lives in us. But the preposition in is not used to describe empowerment of the Holy Spirit not anywhere. It's not anywhere used to describe empowerment. The preposition that's used to describe God's empowerment for ministry is upon or on. And that is the same as being filled. This is where it gets a little confusing. Being indwelt by the Spirit of God is not the same as being filled by the Spirit of God. Holy Spirit is in you. You're indwelt. You belong to Christ. You have a relationship with God. You're forgiven of your sins. You've been converted. But when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and empowers you, that's the same as the Holy Spirit filling you and empowering you. Again, we see this in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4. It talks about the Holy Spirit coming upon them and then being filled with the Holy Spirit. So in Acts 2, the ascended Lord Jesus Christ pours out the Holy Spirit on the 120 in the upper room, which is interesting because last night we had 120 people here. I thought that was interesting. <clears throat> Jesus said there's a time when the Holy Spirit is going to come upon them and empower them for ministry. Let's just read that count again, Acts 2, 1 through 4. When the day of Pentecost had come... They were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind. It filled the whole house where they were sitting. There appeared to them tongues as a fire, distributing themselves. They rested on each, upon each one of them. There's the visual. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. They began to speak with tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. So I, I think the tongues of fire resting upon them, again, is just a visual of the Holy Spirit coming on them. Or even Jesus has baptism. The Spirit descended upon him like a dove, <clears throat> and he was filled and anointed. So again, don't be confused, but this is where I think the body of Christ is, 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 is so confused, is this idea of the Holy Spirit's in me, I'm filled. Holy Spirit's in you, belong to Christ. But we also need to be empowered by the Spirit. That's when he comes upon you or you're filled with the Spirit's power for ministry. So again, just like the Holy Spirit came upon Saul, in the Old Testament, more than once to empower him to prophesy. The Holy Spirit fills and empowers us over and over and over again. Again, that's what we see in the, in the book of Acts. Some of the same disciples that are filled in Acts chapter 2 again are filled in Acts chapter 4. Acts 4.31, let's read it again. When they had prayed, the place where they gathered together was shaken and they were filled. They were all filled. The Holy Spirit began to speak the word of God with boldness. <clears throat> So the Holy Spirit filled them and empowered them to do ministry, particularly the ministry of proclaiming the word of God, the gospel. So what happened is the Holy Spirit came upon them to empower them. That's the same as the Holy Spirit filling us. I'm not, I want to make sure we're not confused here. All right, now if you have that, have those three prepositions in your mind, with, in, and upon, and there's a couple passages in the book of Acts that are going to make sense to you. A couple passages that have really cause so much division in the body of Christ, and I believe unnecessarily. You know, when I, when I do conferences, I'm doing conferences with pastors from other countries, and, and I'll have Baptists and Pentecostals and Charismatics and Episcopalians and Anglicans. And when, I, when they go through and they see these prepositions, they all go, yes, we get it. Okay, Acts chapter 8, let's look at it. Acts 8, verses 14 through 17, just wanted to give you a little context. The gospel goes to the Samaritans. Remember the Samaritans and Jews hated each other. There's significant racism here. All right, Acts 8, 14. Now when the apostles in Jerusalem, these Jewish apostles, heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them, 
that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen upon any of them. It's simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they began laying their hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. So he's using the word receiving as, in this context, coming upon them. All right, so let me just ask you this. When Peter and John show up, what is the condition of these disciples? Remember, the disciple is, 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 is a word that just means learner. It could be used different ways. It doesn't mean automatically they're a believer. Disciple could be a learner. So what was the condition of these disciples in Acts chapter 8 when Peter and John got there? Was the Holy Spirit with them, in them, or upon them when Peter and John arrived? In them. Why? Why would you say that? That's right, because they had been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. They had come to faith in Christ. That means the Spirit lived in them. Peter and John understood that. But they realized that they, had not, they needed to lay hands on them so the Holy Spirit could empower them for ministry. Again, in verse 16, the Holy Spirit had not yet fallen upon them. And when Peter and John laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them for empowerment for ministry. Now, why did God do it this way? Why did they have to wait for these Jewish apostles to come to Samaria to lay hands on them before they could be empowered for ministry? Why couldn't they have gotten just everything they needed, you know, right away at conversion and, and not, need to be, not, not need these Jewish apostles to show up and lay hands on them? What would have happened? Just think about this. Again, the Jews and Samaritans hated each other. What would happen if the Samaritans got everything that they needed without having to be connected to these Jewish apostles? Don't you think we would have had our first denomination? The first church of the Samaritans. But they got to wait. Those apostles lay hands on them. And I think God, in great wisdom, actually does two things here. Number one, he maintains unity. Number two, he authenticates leadership. Now, let me ask you this question. The fact that there is so much disunity in the body of Christ around the world and so much disrespect to spiritual leadership, could that be one of the reasons why there's not more power, Holy Spirit power in the church? Just a thought. Let's look at another passage, Acts 19. Now, keep in your mind, within and upon, because now we have a different scenario. We have Apostle Paul, Apostle to the Gentiles, is going to, is going, he's a Jewish apostle, but he's going to the Gentiles. So now we have the gospel, the gospel is crossing another ethnic, geographic, religious boundary, just like it did in Acts chapter 8. There's a geographic, Ethnic, religious boundary, the gospel cross, and now it's doing another one. The Gentiles. Let's read it. Acts 19.1. It happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the upper, upper country and came to Ephesus and found some disciples. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? We'll come back to that question. Very interesting question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, no, we haven't not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. This is John the Baptist. Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is, in Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them. And they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. So again, the, Holy, the gospel crosses ethnic, religious boundaries again. The Apostle Paul, the prepositions within and upon. Let me ask you a question. When Paul got there, remember, understand disciples as learners at this point. doesn't automatically mean they're believers. Paul gets there. What's the condition of those disciples when Paul gets there? Was the Holy Spirit with them, in them, or upon them when he got there? Why would you say with? They've been baptized with the baptism of John was the baptism of repentance. So what's happening? They are repenting, but they haven't yet heard the gospel. 
So what's, what's the first thing Paul does? I mean, this is, a, this is a summary of what happened. Paul shares the gospel there. Then they get baptized in the name of Jesus. So where's the Holy Spirit now? He's in them. And then what does Paul do? He lays hands on them and the Holy Spirit does what? Comes upon them. So now they're empowered by the Holy Spirit for ministry. Again, what do you think would have happened if the Gentiles could have got everything? Remember, the Jews and Gentiles hated each other. They could have got everything without these, this Jewish apostle Paul showing up. I think we would have had our second denomination. The first church of the Gentiles. But God, again, God maintains unity, body of Christ, and God authenticates leadership, authority, the body of Christ. And again, let me ask you, could it be because there's so much division in the body of Christ around the world and so little respect for spiritual authority that there's not more Holy Spirit power in the church? Just a question. Well, here's the good news. The good news is that that's changing. It's changing all over the earth, guys. There is a movement toward unity. There is a resurgence of respect toward spiritual authority. And we're seeing an increase in Holy Spirit power, I believe, as a result of that. I'm encouraged by this, what I'm seeing happen there. And uh, we're going to continue to see that rise. Again, as, as God unifies his body and respect toward spiritual authority rises, we're going to see increasing Holy Spirit empowerment around the world. Now, at this point, someone might want to say, well, okay, Gary, but you... You know, the impartation of the Holy Spirit was reserved for the apostles. And since all the apostles with a capital A apostle are no longer here, uh, then we don't do that anymore. Is that really true? Is the Holy Spirit only, was the Holy Spirit only imparted by the apostles in, in our Bibles? Let's look. Let's read Acts chapter 9. This is a conversion of the Apostle Paul. Acts 9, verse 10. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. By the way, you've never heard of this guy before, and you never heard about him after this. This is not an apostle. This is not the Apostle Ananias. There was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, he said to him, Here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, Go up. And go to the street called Straight. By the way, the street called Straight in Damascus is still there, by the way. It's a main thoroughfare. He said, go up and go to a street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. So Ananias departed, entered the house, and after laying his hands on him, said, Brother Saul... The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Remember, being filled with the Holy Spirit is the same as the Holy Spirit coming upon you. So Paul is, Paul is now empowered for ministry through the laying out of hands of Ananias. Again, if, if they needed Holy Spirit power for the Great Commission in the first century, don't we need Holy Spirit power to finish the job? Of course we do. We need the impartation of the Holy Spirit. Now, we see something a little different in Acts chapter 10 and 11, where before Peter could even get to Cornelius, his family, the Holy Spirit comes upon them. So again, we, 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 my main point here is that we see a, a, a usual pattern of the laying on of hands for the impartation of the Holy Spirit. But, but again, we don't put God in any box. God will not be put in a box. Now, Ben, I want you to, uh, I want to come back to the question that Paul asked in Acts 19, because this is an interesting question. Acts 19, verse 2, Paul asked this question. Think about this. He asked the question, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? The Apostle Paul is asking a question. At this point, he assumed that they were believers when he asked the question. They weren't yet, but he, he thought when he asked the question, they were. So he's asking this question, thinking they're believers. Think about that. The Apostle Paul, who wrote Romans 8 and 9, who said, you know, if you belong to Christ, the Spirit of God lives in you. 
He's the one. He actually assumed they were believers and still asked them if they received the Holy Spirit when they believed. So what the Paul is really asking is, is have you been empowered for ministry? Have you had someone lay hands on you? Have you been filled with the Spirit? That's what he's asking because he thought they were believers. But his question is more than that, interesting to me. His question has in it this thought that if you have been empowered by the Holy Spirit, you would have had an experience that would have told you so. In other words, it's not just an inference, a logical inference that you take because, oh, yeah, I'm a believer. Of course I have been. He asked the question in such a way that, did you receive the Holy Spirit? He asked the question like you would know it if it happened to you, doesn't he? He expects the person who's received the Holy Spirit, not just because out of inference from his faith in Christ, he expects them to know because they experienced something that points to it. Interesting question. You can ponder that, those of you right now who are struggling with some of these things. Ponder that question. Paul expects that the receiving of the Holy Spirit, the anointing of the Spirit, the Spirit coming on you, filling you with power, he expects it to be a real identifiable experience not just a logical inference from a human act of the will. You know, we can say more about this experience too. You know, there's no promise in the book of Acts that everyone who's filled with the Holy Spirit can have the same phenomena. But there is a promise in Acts chapter 1-8 that when the Spirit comes upon you, you will receive power. And you'll be able to evangelize, be effective in ministry. This promise is made to everybody on whom the Holy Spirit comes, not just a few. It's interesting, we see in the book of Acts, when the Holy Spirit comes upon different groups, we see different things happening. We see him speaking in tongues. We see prophesying. We see free, overflowing praise from God. We see, we see courage and boldness and witnessing. We see various gifts being given. We see miracles and Galatians, signs and wonders. All these different kinds of things are happening. But it's all about power for ministry. However it comes... Whatever the phenomena is, there needs to be some experience of divine reality that I know that I know. And just continue to ask for it over and over. More, Lord, more, Lord. My prayer is constantly more, Lord. More. It's supernatural. It's an experience we should be able to point to. It's not just an experience that you know from inference. No, not just not inference, it's an experience. So we are ambassadors of Christ. We've been given this great commission. We need Holy Spirit power to do it. And I just encourage people, I say, ask for this. Ask for this Holy Spirit power constantly on your own, but also participate in times of impartation like we're about to have. Participate in times of laying on of hands. I tell you, when, when I'm when I, in other countries ministering, before I leave, I ask those pastors, saying, now come lay hands on me. Whatever God, my prayer is, God, whatever you're doing anywhere, I want to be in it. I want to be in the game. Don't you want to be in the game? Yes. Whatever you're doing, I mean, whatever there's an open heaven, Lord, I want to be under it. And so, again, in, in, no one's going to coerce anyone in this room to do anything. No one's going to say, you know, you're, you're, we're locking the doors. <laughs> we got you now. I mean, this is all, are you hungry is the question. Are you thirsty? Do you want more? And we're going to have we're going to have some time laying hands on people and praying for people. Um, but I before before we do that, we're going to go into a ministry time and just kind of regroup with the Lord in ministry and in, in worship and just connect with Him because it's all about what He wants to do in this meeting. And but I do know I, I'm confident He does want to touch everyone here who's hungry. He wants to touch you. That I have no doubt about. How he's going to touch you, I don't know. That's him. It's God's, that's God's arena. So why don't you stand for a moment, and we're going to pray. That's the worship team to, to come on up as we do this. And there's a, I got lots of things I think the Lord wants to do. I just, I'm not sure what order he wants to do them in. So I'll be praying about that as we uh, worship too. Let's pray. Father, this, this meeting's for you. Jesus, you're the head of the church. You are here in our midst. We're meeting in your name. We ask you, you know, you're the command center of this, of this whole deal, Lord Jesus. You have your way.
You lead us. You lead, Lord. You you do what you want to do. You do what you delight to do. And Lord, we just pray that we just wouldn't mess it up. We wouldn't hinder it, Lord. And Lord, would you just uh, even as we move back into just worship, Lord, would you enable all of us to really press in, connect with you. I pray for your impartation of your Spirit. On those who've never, ever had anyone lay hands on them, Lord, that, that today they would be empowered in a powerful way. For those who have before, but, Lord, just you want to refresh them, empower them again. For those, Lord, that you're launching off on something else. I do believe, that, Lord, that word that you want to, that there's a launching pad here tonight. That many of those who've been leadership in their faith in many in different areas, Lord, you want, there's going to be mountain movers earth shakers and ministry imparters today. So Lord, we trust you to do that. So let's just go back into